0: Welcome to another edition of Expanding Mind. I'm your host, Eric Davis, continuing our conversations about the cultures of consciousness. A couple of weeks ago, I did a a presentation here in San Francisco at uh, Other Cinema, which is a series of wild and wacky uh, films curated by Craig Baldwin, uh, a wonderful underground filmmaker who uh, specializes in assemblage films, uh, building up films from uh, other films uh, in a cut-and-paste kind of manner he has an enormous uh, collection of oddball uh, cinema and he brings some of that spirit into the series. I've done a lot of talks over there over the years even though I'm not a filmmaker but um I've enjoyed uh giving talks where I show clips from a lots of different sources and kind of weave it together and this one was on uh Jack Parsons the uh, now much better known rocket scientist come uh Thalamic magician uh, whose exploits uh, are, are now featured in the CBS uh, series um, Strange Angel, uh, which itself is based on uh, one of the good biographies on Parsons that came out uh, about 10 years ago, a little bit less. Um, and it was, a, it was a great opportunity for me. I've been fascinated with Jack Parsons since I first uh, heard about him in the early 1990s. Um, one of the things I was talking about in my, in my uh, presentation was um, just sort of how he kind of entered into popular consciousness. And, and for so long, he was very, very underground. Uh, for a while, it was pretty much only remembered by, by folks in, in the OTO and, and very deep, esoteric uh, Los Angelinos. Uh, and then in the late 80s, early 90s, uh, a book of his writings came out. Um, his story became mentioned or became part of the lore uh, around Elron Ron Hubbard, uh, who uh, was uh, Jack's magical partner in the 1940s before uh, Dianetics and Scientology was born. And indeed, there's some interesting conversations to have about the influence that uh, Thelema and magic had on Parsons' uh, kind of cybernetic uh, Gnostic, Gnostic religion. Um, that was another source. And then another one was in uh, Mike Davis's book, uh, City of Quartz. And Mike Davis is a, a, a leftist uh, critic of, uh, of, of all manner of things, including architecture and in cities. And City of Quartz is about the history of, of Los Angeles and, and Southland in general. And, you know, a pretty, pretty bitter tale. He's not particularly interested in uh, curious religion or mysticism or... Uh, speculative uh, fantasy, uh, but for him, Parsons did represent a sort of oddness or weirdness inside of the, the politics and, and technological politics of Southern California, uh, it, because Parsons uh, was one of the th- Uh, figures who founded the jet propulsion labs jpl and so he represents a certain time when american industry was kind of figuring out how to how to make really robust connections with uh, educational institutions in this case caltech which while parsons didn't go to caltech uh, he did his research under its auspices with another uh, caltech student named frank molina uh, so he represents an interesting period in the kind of history of Southern California development of the what we would now call the military-industrial complex, and the fact that there's uh, you know, a wild, uh, uh, sexually liberated, uh, fantastical, a little bit over-the-top magician at the heart of that story is kind of about as allegorical a tale as you need to uh, tap into the weirdness of, of California, and particularly Southern California. So anyway, uh, I was very uh, interested uh, to talk about Uh, the TV show Strange Angel and to talk about some other films uh, including Craig Baldwin's own film which I just want to throw out there called Mock Up on Moo. Uh, It's again one of these assemblage films made up of clips of a lot of other uh, recognizable and largely unrecognized films Um, but it's woven in with the whole story of Parsons and Cameron and L. Ron Hubbard in kind of a fantastical way that uses the story as a way to critique uh, power politics and um, you know other features of the kind of California mindscape. So it's very worth uh, checking out if you're interested in experimental film. But well, one of the things that really interested me about Parsons and I've written a couple of articles about him uh, for different publications. Uh, studied him for a while, but um, in watching the the, the new uh, the new show or relatively new show uh, in particular is just that this is the most closely focused representation of of Thelema, of, of Aleister Crowley's religion and the ritual practices uh, of, of the OTO that we've really had in anything like the mainstream. And, you know, again, one of the major themes of this podcast for the last eight years has been my sort of alternately gleeful and woozy shock at how at how quickly and deeply uh formerly underground or esoteric topics have become part in some way of the the mainstream i'm not really sure if the mainstream exists anymore but it's on cbs it's on you know strange angel was on the sides of buses uh, and for those of us who have been interested in this stuff from a more esoteric perspective, this whole transition is, again, very strange. It's kind of marvelous and it's also often produces a kind of wooziness <laughs> as the story gets distorted as it inevitably does. So I thought nothing uh, would be more fun to do than to talk to uh, someone who's in the OTO, who is a scholar of Thelema, a scholar of Crowley, who knows knows the tale inside and out. Uh, and and to you know talk about the representations of, of Philema and Parsons' life and to kind of meditate on why Parsons is such an interesting figure from not just a magical, but just a general cultural perspective. Uh, and I couldn't think of anyone better than uh, than uh, Richard Kaczynski, who um, wrote a great uh, biography of Alistair uh, Crowley, per, tu- per Durabo, The Life of Alistair Crowley, and written a number of things about Philema. And I, I, I saw him do some... Uh, talks and presentations at the Esoteric Book Conference in Seattle a number of years ago and really enjoyed uh, his energy, uh, his combination of of humor and scholarship was was one that I uh, uh, could quite take to. So I thought it'd be pretty fun to talk to Richard. So uh, Richard, thanks for uh, joining us on Expanding Mind.
1: Oh, it's a pleasure to be here.
0: So let's just start off a little bit with the uh, the TV show. You know, I, I think I, when we talked about this before, I said we have to make an agreement that we can carp about the, the, the all the things they get wrong like up to a certain point, and then we got to move on because you know both of us, I'm sure, have all sorts of uh, quibbles and, and issues. But before we even get into that, just, I don't know. Just talk a little bit about, uh, you know, you've been you've been in, uh, interested in Thalema for decades, and you know, been in the order for decades. It's it's a major part of your life. What was it kind of like for you and folks you knew to just even know that this TV show was coming out, that there was going to be, you know, that it must have been a sort of strange, uh, kind of a slightly surreal process to to see like the you know the mainstream Hollywood world really get down and and try to represent, uh, the OTO.
1: Oh, absolutely. And I think, uh, it would be fair to say that even before any footage or anything was released that people, but I know at least the reaction was very guarded. And the reason for that is there have been a number of documentaries done on Aleister Crowley over the years. And they're almost universally, I mean, with the exception of one, um, just horrible so uh, there just seems to be this inability for people to get this right and so hearing that there's going to be a tv series about jack parsons it's like oh cool but oh my god are we going to ruin this but then when we hear it's you know the title strange angel is taken from george pendle's book you know, which was, you know, a very good biography of, of Parsons. And you see Ridley Scott's name attached to this as executive producer, and it's going to be on CBS. And all of a sudden this is like, wow, this is, you know, this is like big leagues, you know? And, uh, and so the idea that, that Jack Parsons is, as, as you mentioned just a few minutes ago, becoming more mainstream is, was exciting to see also. And, you know, course you know there's always that question in the back of my mind is that well if jack parsons is getting really popular can crowley be far behind you know before he gets some sort of miniseries or some other sort of treatment that actually does him justice so yeah that yeah. would be
0: that would be a remarkable a, a remarkable thing to see i mean it, it and you know there again we can as we can sit here and quibble about it like, you know, i would love to say that it was a great show it's not a great show just as a drama it has there's really slow parts and they kind of go down really dumb uh, fabricated tales. I mean the story the, the true story or the truish story that we get from the biographies is so wonderful in itself that you really don't need to add anything at all And they added some stuff and kind of went down some cul-de-sacs that were that were silly there was some but it, at the same time I, I, I have to give them some you know kind of grudging admiration. Uh, for the way that they d- did set up a number of really juicy and important details in his life and elements of his psychology that I think they actually uh, uh, got uh, got pretty well. Um, I want to talk about the science stuff later, because I know that you've also written on the connection between magic and science. Of course, the the idea of the method of science as being one of the, the routes towards what, what Crowley called scientific Illuminism. So I want to get to that. But let's start with just the way that the show represents oto rituals the lama the kind of ambiance of being part of an order uh like that what what were your reactions and and the reactions of folks that that you know i mean what what seemed important what seemed the most uh lamentable uh what seemed actually surprisingly good to you
1: oh where to begin um you know i i I guess to to start with i don't think at any point in the show do they actually refer to the organization as ordo templi orientis
0: i believe so you're what, right
1: So what they're fictionalizing is something else um and you, you know it's it's interesting to hear some some lines and some some passages being recited on a mainstream tv show that you recognize but they're undone in this very different context and um you know this this idea that um you know in, in strange angel this order belongs to kind of has people who get picked to go out and try to groom and recruit uh numbers in the way they depict there is just you know really kind of the antithesis of uh what Crowley's flame is all about, you know, which is, you know, do what thou wilt, you know, and that mean meaning, be true to your nature and exists in the way that is right for you, and to try to influence other people's course in their lives, you know, through manipulation and coercion and with some of the sorts of ickier stuff they depict in the show is just it's just not how it works. Yeah, and, in that uh, sense,
0: I think it was it was partly meditating or or fictionalizing just the the kind of larger issue of uh of especially in southern california of you know small sectarian movements what some people call cults or whatever uh and so they they, it's almost like you can't once you start telling the story of like some small unusual religious group that has kind of heterodox practices it's almost inevitable that you start calling up these kind of archetypes of cult behavior, one of which is that kind of, you know, manipulation uh, of of people, uh, which, which, like, as you point out, does this sort of seems um, off to the, off to the side. Um, But at the, at the same time you do, you know, you get sort of an an idea of, of the will. We get, you get a, a sense of the role that, that eros and sexuality can play in that. Uh, and the way in which you know people come together around a, a focused sort of uh, uh, on ritual that 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 uh, it, you know incarnates or or manifests these these principles. Um, so I, I kind of ended up looking at it as as actually a sort of interesting meditation on what it means to kind of pursue spiritual growth or one's own uh, psycho-spiritual development through the context of one of these strange kinds of groups so whether or not they got the details right or wrong um i I also thought it was actually kind of an interesting way of showing how for example different people have very different motivations to being there but in some sense to be part of a group like that is to share other people's you know interpretations of of what it is and of course there's always going to be multiple interpretations
1: yeah, absolutely, and um, you know, and, and again, if uh, if you kind of squint at this, look a little sideways at it, you can you 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 see the resemblances, and and then as you say, the details may may be off, but the general theme um, is there. And you know, I can I can acknowledge you know that some of the fictionalization that happened is there to give each of the characters their own arcs that they go through, um, and even though. Those may not those arcs, you know. Say for the character Susan, may not necessarily represent what actually happened to the real life person that she represents. For dramatic and storytelling purposes, it, you know, it, it makes for a satisfying story, you know. And so there's that balance between um, accuracy and faithfulness and making good television, I suppose. Um, yeah, well, what, I, what did they get right
0: what, what do you think what were you what were you pleased to see even if it was not entirely correct like leaving aside the correctness of it and acknowledging that obviously we're gonna be in this realm of fictionalization and you know the same thing happens with the scientific story they get the bare bones right but there's lots of things that are that are made up uh, uh, but nonetheless you still it's still a representation that goes out it, it, it has a role in people's lives that, that it didn't before so what were you happy to see um, in in that representation
1: um yeah i think i think the um thing that i was most satisfied with is is the arc for the, the character susan um who i guess represents you know helen his you know, jack parsons uh, first wife um but um you know when you first meet her and she is very devout and religious you know ever kind of setting up this conflict between her faith in what Jack, you know, uh, winds up getting involved in, and and while that, you know, the, the previews, you know, kind of set, you know, kind of set off warning bells with things like, have you ever seen True Evil and things like that? Like, oh my God, how are we, we going to paint, you know, this, you know, Thelema and this? That by the end of the season, that she starts coming around. Um, and, and and so that 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 journey from her um, devout family upbringing to finding some value in this philosophy that at first seemed very repugnant to her, um, I thought was was a good thing to see that that there 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 is that she did find something of value in it after all.
0: Yeah, and of course one of the in the the way that the show tells the story that that a lot of her transformation comes about. Uh, through a, a personal relationship or kind of a, a close relationship with the the leader of the group, uh, who they call Alfred, uh, based on, uh, or on Wilfred Smith, um, portrayed by Greg Wise. And it's a pretty good, I, I like his performance as a certain kind of, not just magus, but a sort of a, gr- a group leader who has a, a kind of charisma and a kind of confidence and um, even though there's some odd f- kind of fun elements where he takes photographs of people to like determine yeah. <laughs> how, how like realize their personality is, which is just, I mean, it's kind of fun. It's just goofy. Um, but, but in, at the same time, some of the conversations were really interesting and I thought he was a pretty good, uh, uh, had a pretty good performance and, and, but I, I am kind of curious how, do you have a sense of, of, of Wilfred Smith and what kind of personality he had, what kind of. What kind of vibe he had? I, that's one thing that I've I've never really gotten from the material that I've read. You know, Parsons. You you get a sense of his kind of con, conf, conflicted but rich and sometimes sometimes adolescent and sometimes brilliant kind of personality from from reading through the histories. Wilfred Smith has always been a little bit more uh, unclear to me. Um, do you see him as a as a as a kind of powerful spiritual leader? What kind of character was, was he?
1: Um, you know, it's i i've not met him so it's hard to say uh, but it's it's kind of funny because i remember when i was first working in perdurabo um i i spent a, a month at the, the warburg institute at the university of london where you know the, the largest collection of crowley's papers are kept and there's you know all these letters from uh wt smith there and you know it's kind of funny because you you read through these letters of smiths and parsons and Regina Call and all these other folks who were, you know, in Holland, and all these other folks who were part of that the California group, or what they wrote to Crowley and him back, and uh, to later and got like pull out these photo albums of those people, and you can, it's almost like you can look and say that's that's him, you know, you you don't even need to be told that's that's Wilfred, you you just you just kind of know, and um, so my impression, which is all I can really tell you, is that Smith was seems to me to have been a quietly, hardworking and devoted person. Um, and I think quiet, perhaps, is the thing that comes across to me, that he wasn't this outgoing, charismatic sort of figure like Jack was. And I think perhaps that's why um, Crowley came to favor Jack over Wilfred. Um, as the, as a leader for the the Agape Lodge uh, in California, um, but he was but he was nevertheless hardworking. I mean, uh, Smith had uh, moved to Detroit in the 1910s to to be with Crowley and to work in, with him on publishing at that time. Um, you know, you were used as attic space as a temple uh, for O.T.O. In, in California, and um, when. know crowley would lay into him mercilessly um you know he just kind of took it off to a great deal until you know there's points where he finally just snaps back but that's just not that's not really his way oftentimes other people would like write these nasty grams back to Crowley on his behalf But, but even even when they came to a breaking uh, of you know um, you know parting of the ways, um, it was just with a lot of sadness. You know, it wasn't with a lot of you know. There was certainly some bitterness, but it wasn't like you know a, a lot of passion or anger in, in Wilfred that came through in his letters. It was just uh, you know just the, the disappointment of someone who basically devoted his life to this movement and feeling kind of mistreated and not appreciated. Um, from someone who was managing from a distance, you know, across the ocean, and not really seeing um, what he was, you know, sacrificing for it.
0: It's yeah, very- I, you know, I'm, I've always been interested, also, and I'm curious to hear what you what you think, since you've you've traced Thalema uh, in America. You you wrote a book about that Detroit scene and all the, the the stuff went that went down there. But it it always kind of interested me that you know, when 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 Crowley died, that the the most the, the place where Thelema was mo- most alive was was in California. And, you know, as a his, I'm a historian of California, I'm kind of fascinated with what I'm, with what is sort of unique or singular about, about California. And to me, even though there are prosaic reasons that the Agape Lodge wound up there, um, you know, in terms of people moving around, da da da, da it also there also seems to be some kind of symbolic weight there, that there's no accident that this is where we see this these rich characters including some of the people the actors John Carradine, people who would who would show up at the lodge or Harry Hay playing playing organ you know goes on to found the Mattachine society and so there's there's a sense of a crossroads of, of culture, not just esoteric seeking of which there was a lot in California but also uh, experiments with 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 sexual relations with with polyamory with uh, drugs that there was a way in which these, these, there was it was just such a fertile environment for that. So I'm just kind of curious if if you look at like the way in which Philema developed, you know, both in terms of the the the, the 30s and 40s, uh, towards the end of Crowley's life, but even afterwards, uh, you know, going on to you know, there's the Caltech Grady McMurtry connection. I mean, there's all this interesting stuff that kind of points to this web work of California. Uh, and I'm just I'm curious how you how you think about that in in terms of the history of Thalema.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I, I guess I think um, that that you do have this nexus of people who were very creative in different ways, and that, and whether that be, you know, as you alluded to earlier, the the um, the beginnings of. An alliance between academia and governments in terms of developing technology, whether it be the science fiction community and and the and the dreamers that are part of that, um, and and then again the experiments with sexuality and, and drugs and spirituality. I mean, it seems like a uh, uh, yeah a very natural melting pot where uh, there would be you know a critical mass of people that were interested. Uh, and uh in in something like oto so uh it's yeah it's not surprising to me that that was you know the place where it started i mean there certainly could have been other spots around the world one could have pointed to but
0: one other question this is again just a matter of you know it would be your impression rather than necessarily something that you knew definitively but having read through this material and i've read some other you know uh Correspondences and stuff by Jane Wolfe and whatever to try to get a little bit better sense of what it kind of felt like, what the vibe was like, what the what the social feeling was like at the agape in the in the forties. And sometimes I go, you know, maybe like if what would it be like if I, you know, if I was transported there? Would how would it seem? Would it seem radical? Would it seem, you know, super edgy? Or would it actually seem like it had those elements, but in other ways it was more. I don't know what to say. Like, like uh, that. It was the kind of place that that you know, ladies who were seekers and who who might go to go, have gotten into theosophy or might go, you know, hang out with the self realization fellowship. But oh, then they hear about the Agape Lodge and they go there and they do that. You know, whether it might actually be less edgy than we we kind of want to believe, and certainly that the the, the TV show wants us to believe, because right. for us Crowley, you know, it's it's very hard to see. The history of Thelema on the other side of the counterculture, you know, because where Crowley is such this figure in the counterculture and there's so much the sense of the, the way that, you know, sex and drugs and magic and the occult revival are all part of this kind of uh, intense bohemia that there's I think there are elements of it that aren't like that back in the back in the day. And I I'd just love to hear you. Comment on that, on the the different kinds of people who might have come there, the the ways in which the edginess was also balanced with a more—I don't want to say prosaic, but just a more even-handed uh, approach to metaphysical seeking.
1: Yeah, well, I, I think um, you know that the the expectation or the imagination of what a secret society is going to be like is never going to be the same as as the reality and it may be perhaps you know that imagination may be overly romanticized or overly dramatized um which isn't to say that you know these sorts of groups aren't also edgy and cool in their own way but it's you know i mean what what you can imagine is you know uh limitless um so on the one hand yeah i mean i get that particularly when uh you know, Agape Lodge was functioning out of the parsonage, you know, a parson's home there, and he was advertising, you know, for bohemian people to come and live there uh, as, you know, as, as uh, you know, renters and that normal people would be turned away. Uh, yeah, you very much get the idea that things must have been way out there, you know, that the, or that story, obviously, you know, nothing came of it, but the, the police came because they heard there was a naked woman jumping through a hoop of fire or something, and the neighbors were concerned. Um, but on the other hand, you know, if you read an account of the history of that period, and um, Martin Starr has a book called The Unknown God, which is kind of a biography of uh, W.T. Smith, but also kind of just a biography of that whole California movement. Um, you know, you get the sense that there's, you know, they're they're doing initiation ceremonies, and these ceremonies require, you know, paraphernalia. They do require memorization. There's paperwork that goes with this. You know, the fact that you know Martin Stark can give the dates that these things happen shows that paperwork was being done, and so there was, there's a uh, there's a discipline side to this as well that the people are reading and studying and doing that stuff. But yeah, I really do get the sense that there was a lot of stuff going on and drama going on. And I think that was part of the frustration that Crowley had with this. Um, because again, he is living in London or, or the UK or you know, Hastings, wherever he was at the time, somewhere in the UK. Um, and uh, and he's getting these letters from Southern California. And, his his impression he says this in one of his letters is he's, he's, he's tired because he keeps getting these letters about a is in love with b who's chasing after c who wants to be with d and so on several times through the alphabet so he just gets the impression that there's these you know endless interpersonal intrigues going on that are just ripping it up ripping the community apart and um i think that's partly what was driving crowley trying to kind of manage this from a distance um, and uh, trying to take Smith out of the equation and put Parsons in his place and why, you know, Grady McMurtry kind of gets sent out there with these, you know, emergency powers uh, that if things were to get out of hand, he can kind of step in.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, uh, you yeah,
0: know, you mentioned at, at the beginning there uh, about how the reality of, of societies of secret societies or esoteric groups is, you know, different than the imagination in fact one of my favorite uh sequences in the in in the show which it's a, it's a, it's a difficult one to recommend because it's there's some bad parts and there's some mistakes and blind cul-de-sacs but there's some really good parts as well uh and one of the ones i really liked is when they go to um a ritual at their at this lodge and you know, he's Jack's kind of in a bad mood. He's like he can't decide whether to take a, a his mundane jobs uh, offer of a a promotion to manager, and he's sort of grumpy. And you see him like he notices like the ceilings leaking, and then there's a he runs into one of his his frauders, and the frauders like you know baking the cakes to use in the ritual, and he's like late, and you you get a really you know as someone who's participated in in esoteric groups, and I'm sure you can agree, there's the way in which the the kind of mundane enters in, and it can be deflationary in some ways, but it also is really kind of humanizing, and actually, in a way, it, it, it makes it even more kind of real, um, but it's this really interesting balance, because so many people initially maybe are attracted to these things, just for the fantasy, for the imagination, for what it can, and of course, that's part of why we're there. Is like, what is what is the imagination? What is fantasy? Let's. How do we manifest it? How do we like intensify it? But at the same time, it requires changing the light bulb and you know the carpet stain, and you got to fix it. You know, it's, it has this kind of mundane quality that's sort of charming in a way. And I thought they did a nice job actually of kind of balancing that, so it wasn't all the all the all the kind of drama.
1: Yeah, well, it's kind of funny cuz one of my reactions to seeing the this dramatization of this ritual is that the one point where you know the 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 one ritualist pulls out a sword and cuts uh you know just literally tears in half this this veil and I could think that would never happen. You know how much it would cost to replace that veil every week? <laughs>
0: so it's That's a, it. That's it. I love that.
1: On, You know, this fantastic drama.
0: (laughs) You know, absolutely. Uh, Well, and I'm curious, like, you know, I know there's not an official, you know, OTO stance on Parsons, but I've read, you know, very mixed approaches. You know, some people in the end go, you know, these are things that happen in his life much later than the series Shows, But if you take the whole arc of his life when he leaves the lodge and goes out on his own or whatever. And some people are like, you know, actually, in the end of the day, he was kind of a blowhard, kind of a lousy magician. He didn't really follow the rules, you know, whatever. And yet he's also this very charismatic figure who is now, you know, a, a pop culture figure uh, to some degree. Um, so I, I, I can I can only imagine that there's some ambivalence around how Jack Parsons... Functions as a kind of avatar representation of Thelema in the popular imagination, you know, regardless of this particular show, but just as sort of a figure that people think about, a figure that people know. Um, so how does he kind of function, at least as you see it, uh, within the kind of, you know, uh, panoply of, 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 of Thelema and of the OTO?
1: Yeah, well, again, as, as you point out, you know, um, Opinions range widely um, from him being kind of, you know, the, as you say, kind of a, a someone who messed up constantly, to those who, um, you know, consider him some sort of a saint. Um, me, I guess my take on this is that, you know, part of the idea of Thalema is that this is this is a the idea of discovering and doing your will. Um, is re- representative of this new eon, which is the eon of the child. You know, and children are undisciplined, they're impetuous, they're impulsive. And in that sense, Jack Parsons seems to embody those characteristics uh, in both his science and his magic. Um, and, and that's not necessarily a bad thing because I think it's this. When he brings that to his science, you know, he to the rocketry, you know, he he doesn't play by the rules because he's self-taught and he doesn't know the rules. But at the same time, that means he doesn't know to think this is not this is not possible. You know, he can he can dream and he can imagine things and then go to his other colleagues and say, how can we make this happen? You know, it's in much in the same sense that it's, you know, people who grew up watching Star Trek you know, see communicators and things like this, and 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 they say, "I want that in the world." You know, it's it's dreamers who make things. You know, who come up with ideas, and scientists who then make them happen. And Jack was kind of like straddling, you know, both of those things. He had the ideas that he wanted to see happen, um, and he had just enough of the the science to kind of get there. And um, you know, with his magical work, um, you know the. The, there is you know, the Babylon working, which seemed to have a result. If you believe the story about Parsons and the boat, you know, uh, which we can get into a first time, you know, that had a result. But you know, the thing is, Parsons, as a magician or as a writer, didn't really have that much influence in his lifetime. But I really think what's important about him is not necessarily what he brought to Thelema, but who he brought to Thelema. Um, you know, because it was Helen that he introduced, and Helen would then go on to marry Wilfred Smith, and even and and she would be instrumental in reviving OTO, and she ran Thoima publications in the 70s and 80s, sold uh you know Crowley editions um as a bookseller and and as an antiquarian bookseller as well. So she was a a really important figure. He introduced Grady McMurtry to the OTO, and as a Grady who again had these emergency powers to restart OTO um, if he needed to take control, and that's those emergency powers that he used, you know, in the 70s to restart OTO. Um, you know, Marjorie Cameron. Um, you know, I have a, I have a colleague by the name of Chris Judica who who gave a presentation in Barcelona this summer about how between her artwork and her collaboration with Kenneth Grant on the inauguration of the Treasury Dome kind of became the archetype of of babylon to a whole generation of magicians so these people that that jack brought were were immensely important and it's i think it's fair to say that if there would if there was no jack parsons there would be no oto today um because it's those people he brought to ensure that it stayed alive uh
0: yeah, that's that's really fascinating. I hadn't I hadn't thought about that. It makes a lot of sense. Although I I also agree with you that that Cameron, I mean, she's being more recognized now. But but in terms of an inspiration and a link between that period and the later, uh, you know, count Bohemian counterculture, uh, she's so important and she influenced not only magicians but but uh, but artists as well. So some of you know some of the really vital. Uh, art that came out of that that era you know Wallace Berman and and and, and on uh, those guys were were influenced by her uh, as well and and you know thankfully she's now coming to be appreciated as this as the remarkable artist that she was As well, so it really becomes a a very rich uh, story. So you had been talking, you mentioned, and I I agree with you very much that there's a really interesting relationship between Parsons' magic and Parsons' science, in the sense that he brought a similar kind of sense of of impetuous imagination, of a refusal to be limited uh uh and you know this was seen in the rocketry not only in that he was self-taught and he was more interested in experiment than in theory but also just even and in, in the 1930s even to imagine that rocketry was possible as the the show correctly actually the show does a better job with the science than it than it does with the Lama, although I still think it does an okay job with with both um and they, they, they bring that forward that it was just that a lot of, you know, real scientists in the 1930s thought that rocketry was ridiculous. So just even to be able to think that was possible to take those those fantasies that were as much a part of science fiction as they were a part of technological possibility uh, and then to run with it was was really remarkable. Uh and so, I, but I'd like to talk to you a little bit about that connection between science and magic, because of course it goes a little deeper than just his spirit of impetuousness. Because one of the things that Crowley talks about is that, is the method of science that uh, uh, that along with the the religious aim, there's a kind of scientific methodology or a kind of empiricism, a kind of th- theory and experiment that is intrinsic to at least modern uh the the kind of modern occult current that that crowley you know gets in motion in in many ways um and i you know that's definitely in parsons own mind and it's interesting to go through his writings and to find places where he he both sees a connection between magic and science and then kind of insists on on a on a division between them and he kind of does he kind of does both uh, but it raises this deeper question about the role of science in the modern occult and in particular in thalema so i know you've written a bit about this you've written about uh you know a piece on 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 the method of science and you are you have done social science you've done work with 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 medicine you you know you're aware of scientific practice you you've participated in those those kinds of knowledge practices as well. How do you characterize that connection uh, between magic and science, at least in a in a in a thalamic context?
1: Well, as you point out, I mean Crowley had this motto, the method of science, seeing with religion, um, as characterizing his his approach to things. Um, scientific Illuminism, you know, was never a phrase that he used. And um, his definition of magic, you know, is that it's the art and science of causing change to occur in conformity with will. And that definition itself, while it's it's very broad, in in his book Magic Theory and Practice, Crowley even says that the act of blowing one's nose is an act of magic because you are doing something in conformity with your will, and and using that broad definition, yeah, I mean. Uh, Doing science is also magic. Doing anything is magic. You know, uh, there's a great quote from Alan Moore uh, talking about how writing, you know, art is magic because you, know, you a writer writes words on paper and people read these things and they experience, you know, you know, a change in their consciousness and they have visions and things like that as a result of the written word. And while he's talking about people reading fiction, visualizing it, you know, the idea that this... The process of creating that is an act of magic, also is interesting, but none of that really gets into the science piece of it. Uh, but yeah, Crowley throws out certain certain you know bits that you know the idea that one needs to keep a a diary, a journal, uh, a record of one's experiments in magic, so that one can go back and and kind of evaluate you know the conditions in which things worked or did not work. And uh, he's, he encourages this pragmatic approach that, you know, what works for him may not work for you. So the key is keep this record, do experiments, and find out what works for you. And then once you f- figure those things out, keep doing that. Um, you know, there's a whole lot of other considerations, you know, with the scientific method that, you know, Crowley doesn't get into, but and that one could also extrapolate on um, you know, and that's kind of been, you know, like the, what, I, what I do in some of my talks and the, the article that you reference, um, you know, because there's, you know, things like, you know, uh, yeah, you know, threats to internal validity and generalization and these other concepts that one can bring to evaluating one's work that, um, while Crowley certainly doesn't speak about are things that are part of a scientific method that one can adapt
0: yeah, it's funny. I'm thinking about uh, one of the the connections that I found between the the science and magic and Parsons, uh, which is that you know with with the rocketry, part of what what was was uh, made it obsessive for him was just the fun of blowing things up, and it was uh, there was a, and they they do a decent job of representing this in the show where there's conflict where. If, to really make the, the the technology work they're gonna have to just actually stop shooting things into the sky but but create uh, a jet that's just stationary and then they have to measure it and so it's not as fun and so Parsons is complaining and sometimes he'll just go and shoot off a rocket just for the heck of it because he wants that explosion he wants that whole that imaginative, uh, excitement, even when it's really no longer, it's not really appropriate for the the pure science that they're working on, which requires more theory, more equations, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And then reading some, and I think it was Jane Wolf, I can't remember who, who was uh, commenting in a letter about Parsons at the time, uh, was saying that like one of the things that characterized his magic, which we would say is more left-hand than other people in the lodge. You know, he was like, oh, he's into voodoo and the hungan and, you know, witchcraft and all that stuff, you know, which is kind of funny for us because we kind of think about left-hand being more in, in, as part of that current. Um, but for for Parsons, that was really key. But her, her line that's really funny is that he's, he, she says, I think it, he's into it for the effects like, he wanted weird stuff to happen. He wanted the poltergeist. He wanted, you know, the the the, the visceral sense that something had happened in a very similar way, because it wasn't necessarily the goal. Like, the goal might be more spiritual or metaphysical or, uh, uh, you know, internal. But along the way, there's these effects that were that he was really interested in.
1: Yeah, I guess, you know, there's this thing, this idea that, you know, it's, it's, you know, kind of like playing the piano or something like that. You know, you don't just sit down and, and play the first time. And so the kind of idea with ritual magic is that, you know, there, there's ceremonies you, you you practice and rehearse and get better at before you may experience um, the, the bang, as it were. And, um, and so I think, you know, part of my, my sense of that letter, and I, and, I, and I do believe you're right, it was Jane Wolfe wrote that letter, um is that there's an impatience there that he's trying this thing trying that thing and that's not giving me the bang that's not giving me the bang let me try something else and he's just kind of casting about and trying anything just searching for something that will give him the experience that he's looking at because the, the the uh the more disciplined approach of be patient with this is just uh you know was, yeah, you know, was was not was not his preferred way of doing
0: things. Yeah, not his clearly not his personality. Hey, I just realized that I've always had a question, and I may be wrong. So you know, forgive me if I'm if I misunderstood. My impression is that you know there are there are a few uh, Parsons texts that have never been published that are you know pretty easily available on the internet. The Book of Babylon. There's uh, some correspondence between him and. And, and Cameron. And of course, there's all sorts of correspondence that, that isn't available out there. And as far as I understand it, that, that the bulk of that material and all of it is uh, that, that the, the OTO controls the rights to. And so why isn't there like a really excellent, you know, footnoted, super tight uh, book? that collects these unpublished writings and puts it in context. I mean, you know, Hieronymus Beta is a great editor and a great scholar, as well as, you know, a a very important figure. And I'm kind of curious, is there some reason that that's not there? Maybe I don't have the story right, because it just seems like, especially now, what a great way to really kind of go, okay, Parson's a figure. Let's really look at what he's writing. Let's analyze it. Let's show where the, the faults of it, how it fits into Uh, uh, esoteric history um and i just want that book (laughs) so i'm curious uh whether anything like that's in
1: the works um you know i I don't know for a fact whether or not oto owns the copyright to the writings of jack parsons i i don't know um but i do know that there have actually been two collections of his essays published Um, There was in the 80s, I believe, um, a a paperback that came out from New Falcon, if I remember correctly, but it was called Freedom as a Two-Edged Sword. And it was part of um, OTO's Oroflam series uh, of books. Uh, The the other volume in that series was something called Revival of Magic, which was a collection of Crowley's essays. But the, the first volume in that series was uh jack parsons essays and then i believe
0: yeah there's another one too it, i can't remember the other yeah, one there's
1: one that there was a, a like a black
0: hardcover
1: mm-hmm. with a photo of uh, jack on the cover in his trench coat it was put out by uh titan press and that may also be called freedom is a two-edged sword um i'm, I'm not sure if i'm remembering the title of that one correctly but that was again another collection of his essays so that's those, those books are out there. Um, you know, in terms of why isn't there a, another one out there, um, I suppose part of this is that while Hymenaeus Beta is, as you say, a great scholar and editor, um, he can only do so many books at a time. And unless someone has come forth with a proposal to do something like this, that may be why. Um, part of it may also just be due to the fact that, you know, for publishing there's, there is an economic consideration. It's like how many, you know, a publisher is going to wonder how many copies of a book can I sell? And if there's already two other collections of Parsons essays out there and the stuff's on the internet for free, you know, a publisher may not be as eager to put that stuff out. So, I mean, yeah, those are- there's,
0: always, there's always those, those things. Well, I, I hope that there's enough, uh, because uh, uh, some of those pieces are, are really, really interesting. The name of the other book, by the way, I just was checking online is uh, Three Essays on Freedom," which is why you were thinking uh-huh. it was kind of the same name. Because right, 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 uh, and, it has, and it has that great, you know, his great libertarian screed, and they're really one of my favorite American pieces of American anarchism. It's just, it's just uh, really wonderful. And he, he had, he was his own. He was a, a little bit of a prophet in his own right too. And I believe in that. In that particular essay, Freedom is a Two-Edged Sword, uh, both in terms of having a very critical attitude towards science and technology as it was developing in the post-war era, um, but also, and this is what I'd like to turn to in the few minutes we have left, also um, in terms of really uh, emphasizing the power of, of women's sexuality, but also of the empowered woman as a spiritual leader and force and while it's you know bound up in complicated ways with his own his own erotic sensibility and there's some elements of what i would could only call kind of cheesiness in it um at the same time it's it's pretty prophetic in the sense of looking you know if you look at it from the perspective of the say 1970s and the explosion of of not just sort of goddess feminism but like really serious uh female driven witchcraft practices and a, a powerful invocation of sexuality as a transformative uh, force. And so, that which, which kind of brings me around to my question, which is how you think, either in terms of how the show represents it and miss, misses the, the, the point, but what was important about the role that sexuality, and particularly the empowerment of women's sexuality, played in that formative period in the in the in the late 30s and 40s uh in the agape lodge
1: well i I think you know just speaking to the the idea of um sexual empowerment and 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 that being something particularly uh important for the the women members of the lodge because that's you know historically you know it's you know Women have been the subject of so much sexual repression and double standards, and and you know the the sorts of abuses that we hear about in the the Me Too movement and so on. That, that this is a very powerful thing to say here. Have this and be you know you, you you have power, you have you know authority, you have autonomy, you have control over your body and your reproductive choices, and all of this is um, as. as uh, great and um you know as, as much as we may talk about someone like grady mcmurtry or jack parsons coming out of the agape lodge um you know we we do have figures like marjorie cameron helen parsons phyllis Seckler. um i i even uh, think very finally i believe that there's a letter from regina call who was one of the other um agape lodge members Just again, you know, just kind of writing to Crowley, you know, really angry about the way he's mistreating, you know, uh, Wilfred Smith and, you know, saying, oh, your letter is a lot, just a lot of what we'd call blah, baloney and bullshit. And Crowley writes back saying, oh, your letter is full of obscenities. I cannot respond to this. (laughs) But but he's just out there, you know, just giving him what for. I just I just love it. It's just, yeah, you know, go out there, kick ass. You know, it's it's great.
0: Well, I mean, I, do you feel that that uh, that Thalema played a, played a role then in sort of creating a space for a more, uh, you know, a, a, a kind of release of women's empowerment as a as a spiritual possibility as a spiritual source? Or is um, yeah, that kind I, of an overreading? Like that's that's what I'm trying to figure out. Is like how do they set it up? You know, how how is it? Yeah. uh how does it go forward
1: well i think i think the idea of possibility is is the key term there because well i think while that's the certainly the ideal um you know the every man every woman is a star the laws for all and, and those sorts of ideas uh, are at the core of uh thalamic belief um you know the the i you know, when you look at the, the, the way things played out and the sorts of interpersonal politics and, and for interpersonal drama uh, that came out of the various romantic intrigues and betrayals and hurt feelings and rebounds and all that kind of stuff, um, is that, uh, you know, these, these things, while they are great ideals in practice, you know, they're still things that the human beings involved you know are still trying you know they, they have their own baggage to work through you know and then we still have a lot of norms and uh, boundaries and expectations that are um, at odds with those ideas you know they're part of mainstream society and we're very very part of our psyche as a function of growing up in that society so you know that there's there, there's that tension between being able to realize the ideal and ideal bumping up against this uh, sort of ingrained social programming that we're all trying to get around and get past
0: yeah very very well said and uh, i appreciate your, your your candor on that one um well we just have a minute left so I, i'm actually just kind of curious if you heard one way or the other that this this, this show was renewed or it was canceled would you care
1: <laughs> you know i'd kind of like to see what happens yeah. um you know, or what they, what they do, you know, I mean, you, you'd mentioned that it gets kind of, uh, it's kind of, the narrative gets kind of dull at points. I didn't experience that because I guess I'm I, I was I'm, I'm interested. I want to see what they do with the stories. So the, even the slow bits um, were not slow to me. So, I yeah, I'm curious to see where they go with it, how they deal with some of the, the issues that they haven't touched on yet. You know, the... You know again things things like the the, the camera story of uh you know around Hubbard coming in and all that that other you know, all the other things that are part of that I yeah
0: yeah it would be very curious Well, I, I also hope that uh hope that it that, that it, it passes because it just gets it just gets wilder and weirder so <laughs> should be good and uh Richard, thanks so much uh for for, for speaking with us on, on expanding mind
1: oh it's a pleasure thank you for inviting me
0: Alright, very good Once again, that was uh, Richard Kaczynski Whose book, uh, Perdurabo, The Life of Alistair Crowley is, uh, is definitely, I don't know if you can say one of the definitive bios There's been so many bios of, of Crowley But it's uh, it's certainly extremely thorough And uh, uh, I really appreciate him being on the show today And until next week, keep your minds open